What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose, whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Well, this weekend, next weekend, over the next, uh, really over this month of November, we will be conducting uh, a membership interviews. We had a, a membership class just recently and participants went through it. And uh, those who went through it uh, then indicate would they like to take the next step and join our church. And as that final step, they meet uh, with an elder 
and uh, his wife. And the purpose of that meeting is for uh, elders to get to know uh, newcomers better, how to pray and how to minister to them more, uh, how we as a church can uh, serve, how we can improve. But also a key uh, point of that interview is to find out uh, where the person is in their spiritual journey. And so different questions will be asked. And one of the questions in one way or another that is always asked is really, you know, their views on, on where they're at with the Lord. And a lot of us use a question that uh, we learned maybe uh, decades ago when we went through evangelism explosion training. And so I want to put this question before you this morning, and I want you to think about it. I want you to look at it, and, and you think, how would you answer this question? Suppose for a moment you were to die tonight and stand before God, and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? what would you say? Um, what do you think uh, essentially gets your entrance ticket into heaven punched, so to speak? What would your answer be? Okay, so, uh, so here's what we're going to do. Take a couple of seconds. If you're with somebody that you feel comfortable sharing your answer, go ahead. If you don't, write it down or just you know, kind of tuck it away. Uh, take, take 15 seconds and you know, whisper it to the person next to you, okay? And if you don't want to whisper to them, you know, none of their business, just say none of your business. All right. <clears throat> All right, so you know, there, there are some common answers that people give. They fall into categories. Uh, Tim Keller suggests that there's at least three very popular categories of answers, uh, and here they are. Maybe, maybe your answer, you find it up here on the screen. One answer that Christians give, or people that get, they give, is because I have tried my best to be a good Christian. Another answer is because I believe in God and I try to do His will. Another answer or, or along these lines is because I believe in God with all my heart. Uh, do, do you see your answer up there in some way or another? Okay. Well, if you do, here's the problem with the first answer. The first answer is salvation by works. Okay. The second answer is salvation by faith plus works. And the third answer is salvation by faith as a work. In other words, faith in faith. All of these answers are these kinds of answers that people sometimes may give in a, a, when given this type of question. Call into question, do we understand the gospel? And oftentimes, it's, as, we, as we talk with people, we understand, okay, there's just confusion here, and we need to clarify things and, and help. But you know, at, at worst, what can happen here is a person can live their entire life with a false assurance of salvation, which is why we ask this question. But at best, a not understanding saving faith of justification by faith, which we've been talking about these last few weeks at, at best, not understanding this creates complications in the Christian life. You just heard in Shelley's testimony talking about dealing with, in her past, dealing with shame and, and discouragement and all of these different things. Many times in a Christian's life, not understanding justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, will inevitably take us down a road that results in guilt 
and shame and struggles with sin and not living the victorious Christian life. That's why doctrines and teachings like this that are definitely kind of heavy here in these portions of Romans, they are so important for us to ultimately understand. Because if we don't understand it and we don't absorb it, and if it doesn't shape who we are and our worldview, the downstream ramifications are huge, huge. Now, just to to set some context, just to remind you, the Apostle Paul is proclaiming the gospel to a church that has strife within it because this church is made up of a group of very strong Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And while they have things that set them at odds with one another, there is one thing that they have in common. Both groups, by heritage, have been raised in religions that stressed and had ingrained in them salvation by human works. And as we saw last week in chapter 3, Paul says that we are justified by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so to the more, especially to the more scripturally oriented, uh, religiously oriented Jewish members of the church, some of the things that Paul was saying would have been extremely shocking. This, it almost like you are d- abandoning the importance of the law completely, Paul, and you call yourself a Jew. And so when you come to chapter 4, Paul is taking care to prove something very important to this church and to the Jewish members of this church in particular. He's taking care to prove that God's people have always, always been justified by God's grace through faith alone and not through the works of the law. And chapter 4 is a major illustration of this, and he does it by providing them with illustrations from their history from two of the very best examples that he could give. So let's begin in verses 1 to 8, where we see that the great heroes of the Old Testament were declared righteous through faith, not from the works of the law. He begins in verse 1, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, Did he gain anything through the works of the flesh? That's what the verse means, through through works of the law. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. These these first two verses, uh, they are tying us into the end of chapter 3, this idea of boasting, because at the end of chapter 3, verse 27, we have this idea where he asks the question, so are we to boast in the law? Where is our boasting to be? Um, and, and we should start kind of this morning by stating something that maybe you, don't, that you may not realize, that Jewish rabbis to this day and scholars, they have a major problem with Paul. They essentially think he's off his rocker. He's nuts. That they, 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 they read Paul, and they, uh, they make no bones about it. They say, Paul does not understand biblical faith at all. Because in the Jewish religion, faith is equated with obedience to the law. You cannot separate these two. Faith is obedience to the law. Your faith is obedience to the law. 
And so to say that these two things are they're separated, like in, in chapter 3, verse 28, one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That's how he's ending chapter 3. That's just ridiculous. That's absurd. Faith apart from the law is not, doesn't compute. Now, I mean, that's like saying you get hydrated by not taking in liquids to your body, Right? Or, you know, you achieve marital bliss by continually nitpicking at your spouse. Both of those examples are just absurd. And, and so by saying one is justified by faith apart from the works of all, that's just ridiculous. It's just dumb. Uh, listen, Paul understands that this would be the objection. He was, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisee. He was educated under one of the most leading Pharisaical scholars of his day. He understands what, how, what this is gonna, how this is going to come across to the Jews of his day. And so he's answering this question by giving them the two best examples from the Old Testament that, that you could pull from. Abraham and David. King David, the greatest of their monarchs, and Abraham, the father of their nation. Let's start with David because there's only two or three verses there. Verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one, <clears throat> excuse me, to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. He's proving his case. He says, yes, justification is by faith, through faith alone, not through the works of the law. If you need an example, look at David. His quotation comes from Psalm 32. This is in relation to his experience with Bathsheba. For those of you not familiar with the story, Bathsheba was the wife of one of his friends. And in one event, King David, this paragon of, of Jewish history, manages to break about half of the Ten Commandments. He covets his friend's wife. He commits adultery with his friend's wife. He steals his friend's wife. He impregnates his friend's wife. He then murders his friend to cover up the sin. And then he lies about the murder. I mean, he's, he's really going for all the Ten Commandments in one case, right? By any fair understanding of the law, David deserved death. And there was no work of the law that allowed him to be declared righteous. Absolutely none. These were heinous actions, right? Can't go to the law and be justified with that on your resume. Yet God forgave David and he declared him righteous even though he was unrighteous. Why? It's in this psalm because David trusted in God. He trusted in his mercy. He trusted in his grace. He trusted in his forgiving love and his promises. So God counted David's faith in who God was as if he was righteous, even though he was not righteous. But he was a sinner. So David is this example that the importance is Faith, trusting in God and His promises apart from how well you do with the law. How about Abraham? The majority of this chapter is consumed with Abraham. What then shall we say, verse 1, was gained by Abraham 
our forefather according to the flesh, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. And understand that the rabbis and the Mishnah and the writings of the Jews definitely said Abraham had something to boast about. They taught that Abraham had absolutely obeyed the law of Moses even before the law of Moses had been given. The reason why Abraham, God called Abraham in the scriptures the friend of God. That's how Abraham was called and how God designated Abraham. He said, Abraham is my friend. The reason he was the friend of God was because Abraham was righteous and good. And he was declared the friend of God because of his good works and the way he obeyed the law even before it was given. And so Paul's putting before us two scenarios. Scenario A Abraham is the friend of God because he lived such a good, perfect, righteous life that he earned that righteousness and that commendation from God, or something else was going on here, scenario B. And that's where Paul is. And so he tells us what it is. He appeals to Scripture in verse 3. He goes, is it from his works? That would give him something to boast about. No, verse 3, but what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul's quoting from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. It's an important chapter, an important event in the life of Abraham. We need to look at it for a few minutes, right? Just to review Abraham, his name wasn't always Abraham. He started out as Abram. He came from the city of Ur, down about 100 miles north of the Persian Gulf, modern-day Iran and Iraq. He was a pagan, right? He worshiped false gods, God chose Abram out of all the people of the nations. He revealed himself to him, and he said, I want you to go to a na- uh, land that I will show you, and I am going to make out of you a great nation. Out of you, all the nations will be blessed. And Abraham believed this vision. You know, I mean, if I had received that, I'd have thought, it maybe was it bad hummus? I don't know. But Abraham knew it wasn't bad hummus, right? And, and so he gets his whole family up, and he begins this journey. Now listen, it was not a perfect journey at all, as the chapters 12 and 13 will show you. Abraham didn't just instantly become this father Abraham, the man of great faith. Uh, he would lie, he would drag his feet, he would bring along family idols, he'd have all kinds of fam- family conflicts. He's been promised this child, and it doesn't come. In chapter 14, right, he, uh, he, he helps his, his nephew Lot out of a real jam. And, and so then we come to chapter 15, which Paul quotes. And it's interesting. We really get insight as to what's going on with Abraham in this very first verse. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I'm your shield. Your reward will be very great. Why do you think God had to say that to Abram? Why did God have to say to Abram, fear not? Yeah, he was scared. He's 85 years old at this point, and he still doesn't have any children. Um, Do you think he had reason to be a little afraid? How many of you at 85 have had children, right? I mean, no, that doesn't happen. I mean, what's the world record? I mean, the Guinness Book of World Records, something like 57, 58 years old is the oldest woman who's ever had children. He and his wife are way past that. 
And he has no choice. And so he starts to say, God, I guess what? I guess it's going to have to be one of my servants, Eliezer. You know, um, you know, he's a servant, and I guess he's going to become my heir because I don't have a child. Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then God said to Abram, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and God counted it to Abram as righteousness. This is the context that Paul gives us here. So outside of Jesus, if you'd ask the the people of the Bible, who's the greatest man of God in the Bible, every one of them would have said Abram. And he was justified, the passage here says. He was declared righteous by God, the scriptures here say, through faith. Because he believed God, he trusted God, not works. Verse 4 in Romans 4, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. To the one who does not work, but who believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Genesis 15 doesn't say that Abraham worked for God. It doesn't say that he did great acts of piety for God. That he did wonderful sacrifices for God. That he loved his fellow man so wonderfully that his reputation was astounded and God was impressed. What we have here is very much a man like us. He was doubtful. He was afraid. He lied and connived before chapter 15. And guess what? He will lie and manipulate and connive after chapter 15. He will not believe God even after this moment in time and go into his uh, wife's handmaid and impregnate her and he will have a son by the name of Ishmael who becomes the father of the Arabian races, right? And so if you want to know where the modern day uh, you know, problems arose between Jew and Arabian, that's where it started, Because he had Ishmael, the father of those races, and Isaac, the child of promise, the father of the Jews. So he was not a perfect man by any chance, any sake, but he was like David. A sinner who understood something important, that he was ungodly. Verse 5 is such an important verse. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And that was Abraham. He knew he was a sinner, that he was ungodly, but he believed that God in his grace would justify those who trusted in his mercy. So he believed God. He trusted in God. And God graciously gave him a righteousness that did not inherently belong to him. He gave him the righteousness of the one to whom Abraham would spend decades of his life looking to in hope, his seed, Jesus Christ. As we saw last week, God could look past the sins of Abraham 
and Moses and all the patriarchs and the Old Testament saints, God could justly declare Abraham righteous because he knew that he was going to send Abraham's seed one day to earth to walk the earth, to live the life that Abraham and Moses and Isaiah and David and you and me were to walk and live and that he was going to climb on a cross and pay the penalty of Abraham's sin and my sin and your sin. God would make him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we and Abraham and David and the Old Testament saints and the saints who are alive today and the saints who are yet to come could become the righteousness of God. Justification, church, has always come through faith apart from the works of the law. And biblical faith is to believe something to be true about God. Biblical faith is to accept what God says, that it is correct, that it is real. It's believing what God says and trusting Him in spite of what other things may say. You know, Paul asks us another important question in this passage. You know, in verse 9, it leads us to another gospel application. We're not going to deal with it long, but I want to ask it because I'm sure someone in here needs to hear it this morning. He says in, in verse 9, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. All, these, all this language about, what's he getting at? That the point that he's making here to, these, to this church and to us is that Christ's righteousness, listen, it's needed by everyone, regardless of your national origin and your heritage. It's needed by all. And the good news of the gospel is it's available to anybody who will trust in him. Anybody who wants it can have it. And the whole point of this, of this analogy that he gives is that, hey, Jews, it's not about the Jews. Abraham wasn't yet technically a Jew when he was declared righteous by God because the great Jewish marker is circumcision. And he wasn't circumcised yet. He didn't have the law of Moses, and he wasn't circumcised, and those are the big things for Jewish people, and yet God declared him righteous because he trusted in God. And so the good news is, whether you come from a Jewish background or a Gentile background, it's for all of us. In verse 23, verse 25 at the end of this passage, he writes, the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. And so you may be here this morning, and you may have sin in your life, and you may realize that I am a sinner separated from God, and the good news of the gospel is that if you want to be reconciled to your heavenly Father, you can be. You can turn from your sin, and you can trust in Christ. And you can be declared righteous by your heavenly Father because your sins, the death of Jesus Christ, pays for the sins of every one of God's children. It's that powerful. 
One final application I want to give you this morning. And, and, and I really, this message, I almost made this application the entire message, okay? But to do so would have done violence to the text. I couldn't justify it because we're doing a whole chapter. And uh, as it is, I'm having to skip a lot of verses, which is kind of irritating. But anyway, um, but uh, so, so let me give you the application first. And let me explain where we're going here. And we're going to uh, park here for a little bit. Being declared righteous by God frees us to boast in Christ and anchor our lives in this reality. Being declared righteous by God frees us to boast in Christ and anchor our lives in this reality. You know, one of the things that Paul is doing here is he's, in this chapter, is, you know, he has declared the truth and now he's illustrating it to try to to put a bow around it for these people. And I'm also conscious that in our own church this morning, right, we have been over the last several weeks, we have gone through some deep subjects. I mean, we've been talking about the wrath of God, for example, and judgment and sin and particular kinds of sin that are not necessarily popular in our day and age to even talk about. And, and I mean, just, we've been taking on some, some deep stuff. And, and then we, we talk about justification and being declared righteous by God, which is, folks, that, that, that single doctrine, that passage last week, as, as we pointed out, it is the pivotal passage in the book of Romans, as many people said, maybe the most single important paragraph in the entire Bible. Why is it so important? Okay, so I kind of feel like we need to circle around and, and put, try to put a little bit of a bow around it so that we understand it's not just a heady, you know, knowledge thing. But the reason why this is being stressed is it, it impacts our everyday life. It is supposed to anchor our lives in this reality. And if it does anchor us, it's going to affect all of our relationships, how we live our lives, how we, how we see ourselves at work, at home, as husbands, wives, children, co-workers. It's going to affect how we invest our time, our money, our talents, how we vote. I mean, it touches everything. Okay? Hopefully I haven't set myself up for failure by building it up too much. So I want you to hang with me on this because really much of this application kind of grew out of my own personal worship this week. Um, I, I read typically in the New Testament and the Old Testament uh, when I, in my personal worship. And, and right now I'm in the book of Acts and I'm in the book of Judges. And so here I am this week, I'm reading in the book of Judges and I get to the portion about Gideon, right? And the story of Gideon has always been one of my favorite because I feel like, yeah, that would have been me. I would have been saying, are you sure, Lord? And I would have been doing all kinds of tests and like Gideon did. I totally get where Gideon was coming from. But, but there's this portion in chapter 7, right? This is where, where Gideon has his army of 32,000 people, and they're going to go against the Midianites who have like you know three or four times that many. So he, odds are still stacked against him. And God makes this interesting statement that no, still it's got way too many people. Way too many. And of course, if you know how the story ends, he went as the 32,000 down to 300, right? I mean, come on. I mean, what kind of a joke is that, Lord? That's what I would have been saying. I'm sure Gideon was too. But here's the verse that stood out to me. In chapter 7, verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. 
Now, why do you think that verse popped out at me? What word? Come on. Boast. Yeah, boast. The word boast popped out because I knew. You know, I've been studying this in chapter 3. We have boast. I have it in chapter 4. Boast. That's like, huh. Obviously, you know, boasting here is not good uh, because what he's saying is, I'm not going to allow the Israelites to steal glory from me in this upcoming battle. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to winnow this thing down to 300 people, right? Uh, and then I thought about, you know, boasting in our text, right? Here in Romans chapter 4, he's basically saying, yeah, if, 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 if Abraham could do the works, he has the right to be proud. See, most of the time, scripturally, in the Bible, boasting is associated with spiritual pride. That's it in, in Gideon. It's, this is what the point is in the first couple of verses of Romans chapter 4, but not always. And so as I was sitting here thinking about it, I thought about the passage in Galatians where Paul says, far be it from me to what? Come on, far be it from me, but boast. Except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So in one sense, boasting can have, you know, incredibly negative spiritual ramifications, even keeping us separated from God for all of eternity due to spiritual pride. But in another sense, like here we see here in Galatians, it can actually be the sign of fully embracing our justification by faith in Jesus Christ alone. So what gives here? How do we make sense of this? That's where my thoughts are going. I think there's something here. What is uh, God and God through Paul? Uh, why does he say so much about boasting? What's he getting at? I want us to. I think this is. I think this is important because I think it helps us to really anchor ourselves in everyday life. So to to, to help us understand what this idea of boasting is, I want to start with a video. Right? It is football season. It's not a Jaguar video, although I was tempted. Um, let's take a, a look at one of the all-time great pregame boasters. You know what he's doing there, right? Of course we do. These men are getting ready to engage in a very violent game. If you ever sat down near the sideline of an NFL football game, you know these men are big, they are fast, this is a violent game. You get hurt, you get injured, sometimes you get crippled. And what they're doing is they are emotionally preparing themselves. They are psyching themselves up. And one of the ways they do this to, to help get prepared themselves to face the danger is they talk trash about the other team and about how good they are, how much better they are than the other team, so that when they go out, they, they, they can't do anything to us, he says, right? They're not ready for us. They can't handle us. What's he say? They're a bunch of chumps, right? We, we aren't. We're, we're, we're all this. They're a bunch of chumps. We're going to mop them up. And so he's pumping them up, building up their confidence so that they could face what lies before them. This is an age-old tradition. Remember Braveheart? How many of you have seen the movie Braveheart, right? Remember the scene where the, where the, the English army comes across the uh, you know, fields and uh, they so outnumber the Scottish, and the Scottish being realistic basically say, um, we're going home. 
<laughs> we're not doing this. We want to live to fight another day, right? And so, you know, some of you immediately thought about the scene where the Scottish were mooning them and all that. I know that's what you were laughing at, but that's not, we're not showing that one, right? But they engaged in this taunting of the British. But in that particular scene, they knew we are so outnumbered. And so, you know, uh, Mel Gibson gets up there and he gives this inspiring speech about freedom and about how they are the men who can bring this about. And he's inspiring them to help build up that confidence to help them go out and face what they are clearly afraid of, knowing that they could face their death. And how do you instill confidence to encourage men to go out and face death, you have to convince them uh, we're better than they are, right? We have a chance at this. So this is the point. In the Bible, boasting is very much pulling from that ancient tradition, just that we see even today in, in sports. It's very much associated with putting your confidence into something, investing it with your loyalty, ultimately investing it with your worship. And you see this in the scriptures in Psalm 97, verse 7. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. They're putting their confidence in worthless idols. Jeremiah chapter 9, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Is he saying, walk around at work tomorrow going, I know the Lord and you do not? That's not what he's saying at all, right? The idea of boasting here is putting your confidence into something, right? And this is profound. What God is saying through Jeremiah is where justification and boasting and our daily lives all intersect. Because some of us here this morning, we are boasting in our careers. We look at our future and we are afraid, so we put our confidence in how much we can earn and invest we worship our jobs, and we boast in our vocational prowess. For others of us, some of us, we're boasting in our children. Will I really matter? What difference will I make in this world? Oh, I'm going to have children. If my children can achieve, if my children can do better than I, if my children can make a, world, a mark in the world, so I'm going to put all of my energy and all of my attention and all of my effort and money to give them every single advantage I can. And so we end up boasting in our children and we worship them. Some of us are boasting in comfort. We're afraid of the turmoil of our lives and so we put our confidence in a bottle, or we put it in a pill, or a pornographic image for relief. Some of us are boasting in the Republican Party, or the Democratic Party, 
And we, we spend all of our time online and making comments and doing this and posting that. And, and here's the problem with all of these boastings. We end up, we're better than you. We're going to mop it up with you. See, because all kinds of boastings like this, this type of investing of our confidence in something other than our creator creates an idolatry. And that idolatry, we invest it with so much of our importance that anything that challenges that is the enemy. And so if you're a Republican, it's a Democrat who's now the enemy. Or if you're a Democrat, it's a Republican who's the enemy. And the language becomes that of enemy. Or if you're a Reformed Christian who your God is Reformed theology, that it's the evangelical Christian who doesn't have Reformed theology who becomes your enemy. How sad is that when you're supposed to be playing for the same team? I can go on and on there. So as a result, even though we've been justified by faith alone, we end up living anemic lives filled with defeat, shame, and guilt, not experiencing the power of God and the deliverance that the gospel brings. God doesn't wait until a judgment day to declare us righteous. He declares us righteous right now. I brought that out last week. Why? Why is he declaring us righteous right now? Being declared righteous right now is meant to anchor us in our lives right now so that we can stop boasting, stop having confidence and trusting in flawed temporal things that will not bring to us what we think they will bring, but that only Jesus Christ can bring He's declaring us righteous right now in Jesus Christ so that like Paul, we can boast in Christ and in the cross of Christ and that everything else in life will be crucified to that because that is what will bring significance and meaning and comfort and security and identity. That's the boasting that we are to be characterized, church. You know, if you're struggling here, there's good news. I struggled with this. It is so easy to boast in something that is temporal. It is so easy to put my confidence in something other than Jesus Christ and being declared righteous in Him. The good news here is that Abraham also struggled here. And the Abraham that we saw in in chapter 12 and the Abraham that we saw in chapter 15 was not the Abraham that we see in chapter 17. He is not the Abraham that we see at the end who is declared the friend of God. The trajectory of Abraham's life was that of a man who more and more understood this and he boasted in his Redeemer and it changed the reality of his daily life. Let's end with these verses. Verse 18, in hope. He believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. So 15 years later from Genesis 15, 
When he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, she's 99 years old. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he boasted in God, as he gave glory to God. May God do that same work of redemptive grace in all of us. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, would you do that? We are tempted on all sides to boast in other things. Forgive us when we do. When we put our confidence in things that are shiny, but they do not deliver. Lord Jesus, would you help us to rest securely in who we have been declared to be because of your sacrifice on our behalf. Heavenly Father, give us the grace we need to to be content in having been declared righteous through the, the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Just as you did with Abraham, Heavenly Father, we ask that you would do the same for us. Would you grow our faith? Forgive us for our unbelief, Lord, when we turn to the things of this world and we put our our confidence in things that are temporal. We boast in things that do not matter. We live for the things that will not last. Anchor us, Lord, in this life upon the, the foundation, the rock that cannot be shaken. That rock that you have declared us righteous in Jesus Christ for all who believe in him and trust in him. And Lord, for the one here this morning who hasn't yet trusted, would you give them that gift of faith, I ask, on their behalf. We praise you, Father, for not giving up on us when we boast in other things. Thank you for being long-suffering and merciful and bringing us back to where we need to be, putting us back on the right path and keeping our eyes on the author and finisher of our faith, our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name I pray, amen.